Tonight I'd like to talk about how we can <clears throat> actually live the practice so that we don't see it <clears throat> simply as some fragmented part of our lives, as something we do either just on retreat or do for a part of the day, but some way of understanding <clears throat> that Dharma practice is our life understand how our life can be a full expression of it. Although it may not have been completely obvious to you during these last nine days, really what the practice is about is being happy. I knew you would understand. <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh, he said a wonderful thing. He said, practicing Buddhism is a clever way to enjoy life. Happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. And that's really what it's all about. You know, it's about understanding the Dharma, the nature of things, the Tao how things are working, understanding it well enough and completely enough so that we're living in harmony with it. Because that's the source of happiness. And there are many kinds of happiness that are available to us. There's the familiar happiness you know, of our worldly pleasures, just living comfortably, being with good friends, being in nice surroundings, all of the kinds of happiness that people usually strive for in their lives. There is a way to experience this. There is a way to develop it. There's the happiness of peace, <clears throat> the happiness of peace of mind, which is quite different than the happiness of worldly pleasures. That there's a way to experience that. <clears throat> there's the happiness of liberation. There's the happiness of freedom. And the Buddha talked about all of these. He talked about them in terms of three fields of training. And these three interrelated fields really become the fabric or can become the fabric of our lives. We can see our lives in the context of practicing and developing and cultivating these three fields. And each one of them is the condition for another kind of happiness. The first of the fields of training, which I think is often undervalued or underestimated in terms of its power, its transformative power, to make us happy is the field of generosity, really practicing generosity. Most of us probably think of ourselves as more or less generous people. 
You know, probably not many of us would think, yeah, I'm really stingy and miserly. <laughs> Even recognizing the strong force of greed in the mind. <laughs> Still, I think that, you know, we generally have developed to some extent this quality of generosity. But often we rest in that. We rest at our level of development. And like the meditation training, the practice of generosity itself goes very deep. It really can be brought to perfection. In understanding the Buddha, the way really of understanding who he was, was an understanding the qualities which he brought to perfection. These are called paramis in Pali, the perfections of mind. And the first parami of the Buddha is generosity. And there are many stories. There's a collection of tales called the Jataka tales, which tell the stories of the Buddha's previous lives as he was cultivating these paramis. And there are many stories where he is practicing this, this quality of generosity to the extent often of even offering his life. There was one story. He was, came to a cliff. He was a hermit in the forest. And he was wandering around in the forest. And he came to the edge of a cliff and he looked down and he saw a tigress with two baby cubs. And the tigress was starving. And so the cubs had nothing to eat. And he was so moved to compassion, as the story goes, that he threw his body off the cliff to be food for the tigress so she could feed her cubs. So we probably have a way to go. (laughs) For me, what is interesting about understanding this parami is that like mindfulness, like concentration, like metta, loving-kindness or compassion, generosity is also a quality which can be practiced and cultivated. It's not something we have or we don't have. And the great beauty of it, the tremendous beauty of this quality, is that it makes us so happy. And reflect for a moment just on both how you feel about people you know who are very generous. And when you think of a very generous person, immediately there's a loving feeling we have about them. And reflect on how we feel ourselves when we're being generous. It's a tremendous lightening of the heart. It's really a generosity of the spirit. It takes us out of our neurotic, obsessive, thought forms. We're less self-centered, self-concerned every time we practice giving. And there's no one way, obviously, to give. And we all will find our own ways. Um, there's some expression of our energy, you know, of our time, of our care, of our concern.
generosity makes us happy. It's interesting to play at the edge and not to create an ideal in our mind. Well, I should be this totally open, generous person and then berate ourselves for not living up to the ideal, which can happen very easily. But rather when we're at the edge, to see at that place if there's a willingness to extend. Sometimes there is and it's genuine and we can make more space and we can create a little more energy in that moment. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes there's not the energy, there's not the willingness. And to do it at that time often will just create resentment. It's not a true giving. There are times, especially in a long retreat, not so much in in a nine-day one, but often during the three-month course every year, where we're seeing people a lot, you know, day after day after day, many, many interviews, and somebody will come up and say, I just need to speak to you for two minutes. One of the things I've learned in 20 years of teaching, there's no such thing as a two-minute conversation. (laughs) But it's really interesting because in that kind of context of a long retreat and working hard and seeing a lot of people, that often becomes a personal edge of generosity for me. Okay, I'm really tired. I feel really filled up. What to do? And it's really a good place to work. Often I can, okay, just settle back, make more space. It's an act, it's an offering. Sometimes can't. Sometimes it just <laughs> can't be done. And although it was very difficult to learn, over time I learned to say, I can't do that now. No, let's make another time. And so it's to see that the practice of generosity is a practice. And we can play with it and we can learn how to do it skillfully. (laughs) The thing to remember in it all is that it genuinely makes us happy. And as Thich Nhat Hanh said, happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. (laughs) If we understand what are the conditions, what are the causes, then we do it and we practice and actually we find our lives getting a lot lighter, a lot more open, more open-hearted, more generous, more loving. So this is the first field of training that we can integrate in our lives and actually work within our lives. An exercise that I've done over the years in this training, which has proved very helpful to me, that when I have a thought to give something, when the thought comes to mind, to make it the practice of actually acting on it. Because so often the thought will come and either just won't take the time or the effort to do it, or there'll be some doubts, you know, the thought will come to do something generous and, nah, you know, they don't really deserve it. <laughs> 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 I really want that thing, you know. And, 
And so just as a practice, as a way of cultivating it, just whenever the thought comes to practice acting on it, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. There is almost never regret. Occasionally. (laughs) But not very often. So this is the first area that we can really work with in our lives. The Buddha said that generosity is the karmic condition for abundance. It's the karmic condition for this worldly kind of happiness that we can experience. So it's very, it has, it has tremendous implications, not only for how we feel in the moment, how it affects other people, but it has a relationship to the whole unfolding of our lives. The second field of training, and it's a very fertile field for work in our daily lives, in our relationships, is the field of sila, or morality. And again, like generosity, this is capable of tremendous refinement. You know, we probably think of ourselves as being basically good people, moral people. Can we begin to develop it, cultivate it, refine it? A baseline of, or reference point for this work would be exploring the meaning in our lives of the five precepts. These are the five basic precepts of non-harming, of not killing, of not stealing, of not committing sexual misconduct, of not lying, of not taking intoxicants which confuse the mind, to cloud the mind. This is not a great ascetic discipline. These are basic. They're expressions of a basic humanity. Just imagine if everybody on this planet followed just one precept. If everybody followed the precept of not killing, even just not killing other human beings, (laughs) the world would be a very different place. And we see that the level of morality is directly connected with the level of our humanity. And so to take each one and to see, okay, how can I apply this? How can I integrate it? Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes we're presented with very real dilemmas. You know, we might be very committed to not killing. really having a respect for the life form of all beings. Termites are eating your house. What to do? <laughs> you know, it's, I think that the, the purpose of this reflection and investigation, again, is not to create an ideal picture. 
because that just creates conflict. But rather, it's to take each one of the precepts and bring as much consciousness to it as possible. Okay, how can I act to absolutely minimize the taking of life? And so we work with it. And each one of us will find our own way in this. There's a wonderful, there's a wonderful little book called Kinship with All Life. And the one story, in this, it, it's about a person who had this amazing ability to actually communicate with all, all kinds of animals. <laughs> he had such a refined sensibility, this person, that he was able actually to call a fly to rest on his finger. He, he established this relationship with a fly. That was impressive. <laughs> and it says, just, you know, some time ago I was in some store and there was a fly buzzing around and the storekeeper just kind of took out the fly swatter. <laughs> it was, it, in normal society, that's probably the most ordinary thing. And yet from another change of perspective, it seemed so such a violation you know, of, of basic relationship. And so it's just to see, to, to watch our actions, to, to see that we are in relationship right, to other human beings, to other life forms, to the planet. This, this can become our Dharma practice. It's a part of our practice. It's not just sitting on a cushion. working with the precept of sexual misconduct. Now, how much suffering has been created because of people not paying attention to the power, the power of sexual energy, the power of those relationships, and we can get so caught up by the passion, by the desire, often to the extent of not seeing, not even considering whether something is actually in harmony or something is causing harm. So this is, this is an arena for us to really take care in our lives because it is a very powerful energy. And what I think is quite encouraging in a way for us in this investigation is that really we know. If we take the time to consider what we're doing, we know. We know whether something is conducive to the happiness of everyone concerned or is causing harm. And so it's to make the effort to pay attention, to bring some sensitivity to it. another arena in the precepts, which is a tremendously fertile ground for work. It's the whole area of right speech. We talk a lot. Most of every day, that's our medium of communication. 
with people. What's the quality of our words? The Buddha gave some very simple guidelines, which, like the practice, is very simple, but not easy to do. So don't use harsh speech. Don't use angry speech. Don't be backbiting, talking about other people in a way that causes divisiveness. It's so... (laughs) Sometimes I picture the Buddha giving these teachings, and it feels like he's talking to people in kindergarten. (laughs) You know, it's just... But we need it. We need it. I think we are in kindergarten. You know... Don't speak harshly. <laughs> and don't cause dissension. It's so obvious. It's so obvious. You know, that that kind of speech makes us unhappy. It makes other people unhappy. It causes suffering. But our habits are so strong. You know, as you may have noticed even in this last hour, certainly with reflection or when you leave here, so often we're in the middle of what we're saying before we even know what we're saying. And the same attention that we've been cultivating with the breath, with sensations, with thoughts, very powerful to use that attention towards our speech. Speech has a, a great force in the world. Years ago, when I was first getting interested in Buddhism and the Dharma, I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. That's where I had my first connection with it. And I was just learning about all this stuff. I made an experiment for a couple of months where I made the resolve that I wasn't going to speak about any third person. But if If I had something to say to somebody, I would say it to them, but I wouldn't speak about them to somebody else. 95% of my speech was eliminated. (laughs) It was amazing to say how much of what we say, the Buddha talked, it's useless talk uh, and, and often harmful, awful harmful talk. I found two things from making that experiment. One was that my mind got quite peaceful. Both, <laughs> it was both from just not speaking so much, you know, just learning how to rest in a more silent space, which is nice. You know, we, can, we can give ourselves a rest. And in another way, what happened was it started deconditioning the judging mind. Because a lot of that speech has to do with judgments we make. And they might be right and they might be wrong, but it's that quality in the mind of judging others. What's so striking as we learn to watch our minds is how we have an opinion about everything and everyone. (laughs) And we're usually not shy to express it. And just as I stopped, you know, for that period of time, I really made that effort 
to stop that kind of speech, what I found was that the judging mind, both of others and of myself, really quieted down. So that was a huge relief. These are just some examples. Each one of the precepts really could be looked at very carefully in our lives. As I say, there's a refinement. The Buddha talked of morality, the happiness of morality. And it's not morality in the sense of self-righteousness. Sometimes people confuse, they confuse morality with moralistic. And it's not that at all. Morality has to do with a basic and deep care not to harm. Not to harm ourselves, not to harm others. Just imagine if we brought that attitude deeply to every interaction we had. Our lives would be quite different. The Buddha talked of this quality of morality as being the true beauty of a person. In our culture, we're so concerned with outer beauty. And this, it's quite amazing to me, the attachment that the cultural society at large has to youth, you know, as as if growing old is a mistake. (laughs) And somehow we have to kind of cling to looking young and being young and And it's great when we're young. (laughs) But there is a natural process. And the real beauty of a person is this quality in them of non-harming. I'd like to read just part of a poem by the Vermont state poet. His name is Galway Cannell. He's He's a wonderful poet. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow, the flower, and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. That's the beauty. It's the beauty of non-harming. It's the beauty of morality. When we flower from within of self-blessing. It's also a tremendous gift, tremendous gift to everyone around us. Because when we are committed, really committed, not committed theoretically, but willing to make the effort to look at our actions, to be attentive with our speech, with our actions, with our relationships. When we're committed to this non-harming, what we are doing is giving the gift of trust to everybody we meet. We're giving the gift of fearlessness. 
because we're saying with our lives you have no reason to fear me I'm not going to harm you in any way in my thoughts in my speech in my actions a few people in this afternoon in the go-around mentioned how safe they felt in this environment this is the safety that can come this is the trust that can come from working and developing and refining this area of sila or morality so the first is practicing and developing generosity second is looking at our lives looking at the actions in our lives and refining the quality of sila of non-harming the third area of training is the area of meditation it's really the work we've been concentrating on during this retreat it has two sides to it <clears throat> it's the training in concentration and the training in insight in wisdom the two are related unless there is a basic foundation of concentration not some fantastic you know state where we're levitating in the air but just some basic ability to stay focused for a breath or two it's very hard it's very hard to develop any insight or wisdom because the mind is simply lost <coughs> wandering scattered and so the training that we're undertaking in meditation in the beginning is a training basic basic training <laughs> basic training in in concentration which is why there's been the emphasis on using the primary object coming back to the breath because slowly the mind begins to develop in this i know that this is possible because when i started my practice i had zero concentration i would sit and an hour later i get up <laughs> and it was great it went very fast <laughs> i had a grand old time and i was totally lost in thought you know my mind was just at, at school i had studied philosophy you know and so my mind was very active in thinking about things and it took some training it took some practice to begin to quiet that down with a lot of the struggles and a lot of the effort and a lot of the pitfalls that everybody falls into but i saw i have this tremendous faith in the process because i saw that with perseverance actually the mind can get a little concentrated it can develop that ability it takes a commitment it takes perseverance it does not drop down from heaven it comes as the result of our own work how to keep the concentrating the concentration developing and deepening when you leave here that's the key question here it's very supportive 
Bell rings, you sit. Bell rings, you walk. <laughs> Bell rings. I mean, it's it's great. <laughs> So you might want to take a bell home. <laughs> there are some ways from long experience now, you know, in our own practice and with thousands and thousands of yogis, there's been a distillation of what can help actually keep it going. One of the foundations of it is sitting every day, just a daily sitting practice. The discipline and the effort just to sit, to make the effort to bring the mind to the breath, to sensations in the body, and doing it regularly has a transforming power of our mind, in our mind. If you can sit an hour a day, that's great. If you can sit two hours or three hours a day, that's great. Maybe you can. Maybe you could only sit half an hour a day. You know, you're busy, you're working, you have three kids, half an hour. It's the regularity of it that is going to make the difference. It's very helpful to find the same time every day so you get into the habit of it. Because if you try to squeeze the sitting in between other things, it quickly gets squeezed out because we're busy. You know, we have a lot going on in our lives. It has to be a priority. We have to take out, this is the time every day that I'm going to sit for however long we can. One other helpful suggestion to support you in continuing the sitting because people get very enthusiastic when they leave a retreat. Yeah, I'm going to sit every day, three hours a day. (laughs) As somebody mentioned today, that doesn't last very long. One of the key ingredients to keeping the practice going is to be very watchful for the mind which arises and starts judging the sitting. Because just as you've experienced here, there are countless ups and downs. And there'll be times when you sit and you really get into it and you're there and you think, boy, this is really working. And other times you'll sit and you will be gone the whole time. You'll just be one long thought process. A common tendency is for the mind to start, ah, it's not working anymore. This is useless. I might as well have slept the extra whatever. And it's that voice that's the voice of Mara, right? the, the voice of delusion. Don't believe it. When the voice comes and says, oh, you know, it's not working well, I better wait till another retreat happens to kind of beef it up again, don't believe that voice. It's like one of the demons that Carol was mentioning. And in the course of practice, we've developed a few Vipassana mantras. And mostly Vipassana, we don't use mantra meditation. That is the repetition of different things. But there are some Vipassana mantras which are very helpful. One you can practice repeating every day 
just do it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> Don't judge it, because that's going to weaken the force of your commitment. If you just do it in a committed way and persevere, you will see over time that daily sitting practice, it transforms the quality of the day. Okay, that's one, just sitting every day. The second thing that very much helps to keep the concentration deepening in our lives, developing in our lives, and something that is so simple, it's difficult to remember. It's very simple to do. And that is using the body as a vehicle for mindfulness. You may have noticed that the body is with us from the moment we get up till the moment we fall asleep. <laughs> we don't have to go searching for it. It's not some subtle, you know, ethereal mindset. It's really obvious. We can use the body as a vehicle throughout the whole day to stay present, to stay centered, to stay mindful. And it doesn't have to be lifting, <laughs> moving, placing. It can be walking and moving and acting at a totally normal speed. Can we be in it? Can we be feeling it? You know, we're reaching for something. Can we, re can we be with the reaching? We're taking steps. Can we be with the stepping? This is a tremendous gift because not only does it deepen our mindfulness and concentration, it also helps us to get out of the story which we live most of our lives in. Now, as you've seen during this retreat, so much of the time, <laughs> one of the things that struck me just over the years is how we're making it all up. <laughs> you know, we're really making our lives up by the stories that we tell ourselves. Next time you're involved in some heavy-duty drama, just remind yourself for a moment that we're making it all up, that we're choosing to look at it in a particular way, to be in this drama in a particular way. Coming back to the body is a very effective way of dropping out of the drama. <clears throat> and we're just here, and we're feeling it, and it's simple. It's as if we become embodied. I hope during the retreat that you've gotten even a taste of how simple it is. Just the simplicity of feeling ourselves move, feeling ourselves sit, feeling ourselves stand. To practice this, you know, as we're going through our day, to come back again and again to the body. The Buddha gave one discourse. It's called, it's the sutta or the discourse on mindfulness of the body. And he said that mindfulness of the body leads to Nibbana. That's, uh, mindfulness of the body leads to enlightenment. 
So it's not insignificant. It's, it's, it's a tremendously important thing to be doing. And it bears great dividends for us in our lives. It's another way of actually bringing the mind to rest. You might also take one little activity a day and try to do it mindfully. Maybe pick one activity a week. You know, just something that takes a few minutes. Brushing your teeth. You spend a week where you really do it slowly and mindfully. So instead of taking two and a half minutes, it takes four minutes. It's not a big time commitment. You do that. The next week you add another, you know, reaching for the refrigerator door. Just one little thing. By the time you come back to your next retreat, if you add one thing every week, you'll see that the mind has actually developed the habit of paying attention. Paying attention to these small things during the day. It's a way of reminding ourselves to wake up. Sitting every day, mindfulness of the body, picking a few small activities. If there is a commitment to doing this, it is really the way of deepening the concentration as you leave retreat and leave the supported environment. The last part of this field of training of meditation. The first is concentration. The second one is the development of wisdom. That's the purpose of it all. The purpose of developing concentration is so that we can understand things. And this understanding comes in many areas of our lives. It's not only in sitting practice. We can see in a very microscopic way the changing nature of phenomena when we sit. We can also see that in our relationships, in our work outside. Really learn to see the impermanent, insubstantial nature. One of the areas which I have found most fruitful for understanding is paying particular attention during times of difficulty. When we're really suffering, maybe it's some kind of emotional state, some interpersonal, some work situation, something happens, we're going along, going along, going along, and something happens and there's a glitch. That is exactly the place to take a look to really see, okay, what's happening at that time? What is the mind doing that is creating that situation of suffering? Our tendency, or a common tendency, is not to investigate, but to blame. We're going along, going along, somebody does something to us. 
had a friend years ago, I was in this relationship, she had a wonderful line. She used to tell me, stop making me feel aversion. (laughs) 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 It was a great line. (laughs) But really, that is very often our way of understanding things. Stop making me feel this way. Which is an attitude of blaming. That something out there is responsible for my suffering. It's not to say that people or conditions out there don't create responses in us, or not the conditions for response. That happens. But the suffering does not have to do with the particular response we have. The suffering has to do with how we're relating to that response. Are we caught in it? Are we identified with it? Are we hooked in it? Or can we open to it and let it wash through? Times of difficulty, times of suffering are tremendous opportunities. It's like we become so vulnerable at that time. I'll just share a This is an old story, but it was one of the most touching things that happened to me. I was on a Zen session with Suzaki Roshi, who's, this was many, many years ago. He's quite a fierce Zen master, you know, and the whole form of Zen, you know, as you might know, is very formal and tightly structured, and there's not, there's not a lot of slack. And everything's done in a group. And in that form, we would go in to see the Roshi five times a day for like, they call it sanzen, two, like two or three minute interviews where you, you're working with a koan. And he was giving me these koans and every time I'd go in you know, and give my response, he'd just ring his bell and he'd say, oh, very stupid. <laughs> and he had a lot of different ways of expressing that each time I came in. And finally, about halfway through the session, he sort of looked at me in great sympathy, I think, and sort of gave me an easier koan. Maybe kind of backed me up a little bit, <laughs> even though I had started at the beginning. <laughs> backed me up. And he said, how, this was the koan, he said, how do you manifest the Buddha while chanting a sutra? Okay, that seemed fairly clear to me. I'll just go in and chant a little bit. What I don't think he knew, although he might have known, is that it pushed this incredibly deep fear button in me, going back to my third grade music teacher who told me just to mouth the words. (laughs) So there's this whole, from third grade on, there's been this whole conditioning around singing and not being able to sing and chant. And and so here in this very charged atmosphere of the session, Titans, you know, I'm getting more and more tense, and it really put my mind to a trip. And this tremendous 
kind of fear came up and and I'm sitting as we were back in the in the hall and I was just sitting I was rehearsing in my mind <laughs> countless times these few words of chant that I was going to go do finally the bell rings I go up I go up for the interview I said I'm really in the state of tremendous rawness you know I felt completely inside out and exposed and I start chanting and I just get the whole thing wrong <laughs> you know it's like there's so much <laughs> that and so I'm just sitting there in this totally wide open exposed state and he just looked at me and he said oh very good <laughs> And it was such a beautiful moment. It was just like, because I was so open, it's just like those words touched my heart. It's as if they literally touched my heart. And I just got this tremendous appreciation for how valuable times of difficulty are. If we can use them, if we can see that when we're really caught or suffering or vulnerable or whatever the particular thing is of fear, if instead of blaming, you know, we're trying to, trying to put responsibility for it on some, somebody outside of ourselves, if we can actually take that time, use that time, just to be with that, to open, to investigate, okay, what's going on? There's tremendous potential there, really for understanding freedom. This really is the training in wisdom. The wisdom comes from having enough strength of concentration and enough strength of mindfulness and enough interest in our lives to really look carefully. And it's not just when we're sitting. This is the essential point. It's our lives. And it's our whole lives and it's every part of our lives. Can we look? Can we see? And we all know intellectually that things are changing. Everybody knows that. If you go up to anybody in the street, do things change? Sure. But we don't live our lives as if we know that. If we really knew, where would attachment come from? Now, why do we get attached to things? Whether it's to our body being a certain way, or certain mind states, or certain people, or certain situations. Why is there attachment? There's attachment because in those moments, we don't really get that it is the nature of things to change. Because if we really saw it, we would be with it, but without the grasping. And so it takes this careful looking, this careful interest to move from our intellectual understanding of things to a living of it, to a being it. As a wisdom exercise, 
Well, just as we can practice generosity and practice refining morality in our lives and practice concentration, we can also practice wisdom using times of suffering. We can also use times... This, this happens more regularly, perhaps, than you know, times of big suffering, but also more subtle. And so we need... We need a special interest in doing this. Just as we're going along in our day, everything's going along fine. Pay attention to when selfing starts to happen. You know, we're just going along and then something, either because of an interaction or an event, or something happens and we can begin to feel the solidification of a sense of self, a sense of separation. Take those moments to see how is that happening? How is the self being created? Is it being created because of an attachment to a desire? That's a common way. Now we get caught by a desire. Now we get identified with aversion. Again, that sense of self. Maybe we get lost in a thought, right? And there's a, there's a solidification of self in that. It's just to watch, to get sensitive. It's almost as if we create a radar, a radar system for self. Right? To see in the course of our day, of our, of our ordinary interactions, when does that happen? That's the practice of wisdom. There's a lot that one could say about all this. But I'd like to close with a quotation from Ajahn Chah, who has been very sick now for a long time, but one of the great uh, Thai forest meditation masters and a wonderful, just a wonderful down-to-earth simple, deep expression of Dharma. I'll I'll read two things from him. First is, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. I like that. We let go a little, we get a little peace. <laughs> let go a lot, a lot of peace. Let go completely, we're free. I wish that you continue your journeys and practice with much wisdom. Use the wisdom that you have already developed to persevere in the practice. This can become the ground for your growth, for the deepening of yet greater understanding and love. Understand that you can deepen your practice in many ways. Don't be lazy. If you find yourself lazy, then work to strengthen those qualities which overcome it. 
Don't be timid in practice. If you are timid, then work with your mind so that you can overcome that. With the proper effort and with time, understanding will unfold by itself. But in all cases, use your own natural wisdom. You come to where you have no more questions, to that place of silence, to that place in which there is oneness with the Buddha, with the Dhamma, with the universe. And only you can do that. So do it already. From now on, it's up to you. This is really the great gift of the Buddhist teaching. The reminder that it's up to us and now we can do it. Let's sit for a few minutes.